Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamplex. That's the that's the intro for the main <laughs> episodes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, but I love I'm it. all scrambled up. I like that I've been slipping back and forth between the two, um, apparently unsuccessfully at this point. Of my, my two worlds have crashed together. All mixed up. You got to trust your instinct, Brandon. Don't know what to do. <laughs> Was that a 311 reference? Yes. Yes. It's wow. less obscure than my why reference in that equation to an unknown episode. I could tell you which one I've seen in concert more times, and it's not 311. Oh. <laughs> a former life, I would go to every Y show anytime they played anywhere near New Orleans. Were you there when they played that Halloween show in Baton Rouge at the Spanish Moon? Oh, I was I there. Was. Oh my God. Were we, we were all, all there? there. <laughs> Holy shit. Wow. I made an elephant eyelash mask. It was a elephant mask that I bought at the store and added big glittery eyelashes to. And uh, someone pointed out to Yoni on the stage when he was like, asking about who wore costumes and they pointed to me and he, and he noticed and he said, what is that? A weird looking dog. Oh I remember God. that. And that was the, uh, were the weird looking dog. <laughs> the most memorable part of that. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. This is like whenever it's the fifth season of a show and they're really strapped for ideas. So they're like, here's how everybody actually met years before the pilot. <laughs> this is crazy. Oh my God. All right. I'll settle down. Well, we do have, probably have plenty of movies to get through today, I think, um, as far as like what we've been watching lately. And I really want to get into the main film because I'm very excited to talk about it. Yes. Um, so I'll just open the floor. What have y'all been watching lately? Well, I haven't been watching a whole lot, but this weekend I did a first time watch of Big Ooh. with Tom Hanks. You know, the, the Tom Hanks movie. Yeah. And that movie is weird. I did not expect it to be, like, so cringy. I, I don't know. It's just something about that whole romance plot really was really, really, really yeah. off-putting. I put it in the same category as uh, Back to the Future, where, like, people don't talk about how odd the sexual component of it is as much as they should. Yes. Because I'm, like, sitting here... <laughs> this is going to add a whole other layer... So I got to go to a neighbor's beach house this weekend. So, you know, perfect beach house movie, a uh, Tom Hanks movie from the 80s. And I'm like digging through their VHS collection at their beach house. And yes. I like put a stack of movies on the table and we chose big. And so I watched big on VHS at a beach house, which feels like a whole other world of an experience. Oh, my God, that sounds magical. Yeah, it kind of was. But it was also, you know, a real weird time. But there's some definite, like, great moments. And his apartment actually is a dream. Just the huge trampoline in the apartment sounds amazing. Wow. Yeah, there's, like, this scene where he has his apartment, and it's got, like, these 50-foot ceilings, and he feels fills it with, like, arcade games and, like, a huge trampoline. And just, like, am I a 13-year-old boy? Is that why this... This looks good. <laughs> Is that why this looks like a fun house? <laughs> I remember he has bunk beds, right? And there's yes. a uh, who's going to sleep on top joke. Yes. Where she expects uh, something else than what she's going to get that yeah. night. Mm-hmm. Were you the only one picking up on the uh, weird sexual energy of the film? Or is that a topic of discussion? It wasn't a topic of discussion, but the film ended and both of us, like me and my niece, looked at each other and we're both like, that was a weird movie, right? 
but no, it, it wasn't discussed too much, but I feel like I need to like air it out now. But I'm just saying, the movie does not work well now. It wasn't us picking apart the cat marriage dynamics of <laughs> yeah. last week's selection. It feels like cat marriage, except worse. <laughs> That's the quote of the day. So, yeah, it's, anybody else been watching things? I watched one of the worst movies that I've ever seen, and I loved it, and I hated it. It's an asylum <laughs> feature entitled Avengers Grimm. I was morbidly curious it is a movie that is like the avengers and that it seems sees the teaming up of uh, different characters but of course it's not the marvel superheroes it's various princesses from the grim fairy tales and they're not even the grim fairy tales sleeping beauty is in this and that's that's not even german There's only two people in it that you know. There's Casper Van Dien as the villain, Rumpelstiltskin, which is obviously such like a steal from ABC's Once Upon Upon a Time. time. Yeah, because uh, who, if you're not ripping off that show in particular, why would you have the idea to have Rumpelstiltskin be your big bad? I honestly find it stranger that all three of us watched Once Upon a Time uh, than the fact that all three of us were at the same Y concert. I find that much odder, <laughs> much more alarming. <laughs> but it also stars Lou Ferrino. And I, there's just something about hearing Lou Ferrino say the word bitch that like chilled me in my soul. Like, I don't want him to swear. I don't, I certainly don't want him to say bitch. Just did not feel right. It's currently streaming on Tubi if you want to check it out, but I <laughs> don't recommend it. Although I have had to force myself not to watch either of its sequels. There's Sinister Squad. It's their Suicide Squad ripoff. And then also Avengers Grimm, The Time Wars, which was actually what I started watching first because I was like, Avengers Grimm, Time Wars sounds ridiculous. And then I couldn't follow what was going on. I realized, oh, this isn't the first movie. Wow. So I went back and watched the first one. And as it turns out, it didn't really make that much of a difference. (laughs) I also watched a movie called 247 Degrees Fahrenheit. It's a movie in which some people are trapped in a sauna, which is very much, I wouldn't say like a phobia or a fear of mine, but I love saunas. I love just being in a pool or a hot tub or a sauna. I love it. And there was a place that I went to while I was on my writer's retreat in December where I had specifically selected this place because it had a hot tub and the hot tub was broken, but the sauna was working. And I did spend a little too much time in that sauna. Like after the first night, when I woke up the next day, my head hurt so much from being dehydrated. So I was like, yeah, okay, I'm into this movie that's about people being trapped in a sauna. Uh, It's pretty grueling. It's not very fun, but it's out there for free on Tubi uh, if you're interested. I watched the Jacob's Ladder remake from a couple of years ago because that just got added to Netflix. The original is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and the remake is really bad. It's upsettingly bad because I understand the idea because the first one is about a veteran of the Vietnam War. And I can kind of see the impulse to remake that and have it be about a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. 
that's not a bad idea. And you can't fault it for trying to do something different than the original. There's definitely a lot of imagery that is the same, but there's a lot of new ideas as well. But unfortunately, all of them were bad. Cannot recommend it. I watched a great movie called Fracture, which is just one of those courtroom-ish dramas, sort of a prestige movie that came out in that 2003 to 2011 era where everybody was doing one of those and they all seemed really, really boring. Like, you could just say the words Michael Clayton and it's like, I'm already taking a nap, right? (laughs) (laughs) Fracture, though, has Ryan Gosling as a hotshot young attorney who has been recruited out of the DA's office to be sort of like a a shark lawyer for this big firm. And his last assignment is the prosecution of Anthony Hopkins, who is this like brilliant designer of, you know, consultant makes these machines, makes engines, and just builds contraptions, who basically non-fatally shoots his wife and then does a bunch of stuff and even confesses. But once he actually gets to the courtroom, he has an excuse for everything that kind of gets him out of jeopardy, out of legal jeopardy. It's really fascinating the way that he kind of tears Ryan Gosling's shark lawyer character apart in the courtroom which is i thought was really great i watched a couple of 90s and early 2000s films that kind of i saw as a kid or never saw and wanted to see i rewatched the net which brandon i know you rewatched that not terribly long ago and i loved it (laughs) great thriller it's so good (laughs) it's so good and you know what the thing it most gets shit about is that um ordering pizza scene And I think that that film predicted the future because everyone loves the Domino's Pizza Tracker more than Domino's Pizza itself. It's true. So the movie was ahead of its time. So true. I saw it not terribly long after it came out, which I know is strange. I was a child, but it definitely affected my opinions about the internet, even though uh, obviously we all use it all the time now. I was very mistrustful of it, mostly because of the net, but also because when i was young and i would stay with my grandparents my dad was the youngest of his parents so all they would watch was 2020 and of course in the 90s all that there was on 2020 was like the internet is full of predators right so it makes you sad because you know sandra bullock she goes on this angela bennett she goes on this vacation and then she gets tricked and it gives me so much anxiety because if it can happen to sandy it can happen to anyone you can't trust anyone when you're on your hot vacation what a bummer (laughs) but yeah i really like it i had not seen it since i was a kid i think it was a lot of fun i also really enjoyed the sixth day uh which i did not see when it came out i guess probably in 2000 or 2001 I also reviewed that one last year as well. What? Did you really? Oh, man. Are we talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger one? Yeah. Uh, I watch a Schwarzenegger movie every year on my birthday as a gift to myself. And that was the one I watched last year and had a, a blast. It was a hoot. It's really fun. I mentioned it to Kat and she was like, oh, yeah, I remember even when that one came out, kind of thinking that it was sort of a lesser like a not as good total recall. And I think that that's valid. I think that that's actually a valid assessment of the film. 
but I still enjoyed it. Uh, love to see snarky villains kind of giving each other shit. We don't see that as much anymore as I uh, wish we did. Uh, I also watched a newer movie on Netflix called The Block Island Sound. I was going to watch it, and then the vibe I got was that not a lot happens in it. Like, it's one of those atmosphere over plot horror films, and I just have not found myself in the mood yet. I'm going to give it a big recommend, but I will say that that's not inaccurate. A lot of stuff does happen. It reminds me sort of of, let's say, Killing of a Sacred Deer like that kind of A24 film, where actually a lot of things happen, but it deceives you because it doesn't have the appearance of motion. I've heard the the word Lovecraftian thrown around a lot too. There's an element of that. And I don't want to give away too much of the plot other than to say, we talked last time about what lies below. And I think that the Block Island sound is a functional version of what lies below it does what lies below is trying to do but well um other than you know having like a really hot dude like rise out of the water and be like this is my body (laughs) i'm in the gym all the time you know like that element is gone but the elements of like kind of terror and the unknown and especially like kind of the inherent creepiness of water that you can't see the bottom of that comes into play as well. So I give that one a recommendation. And I think even from my earliest writings for the site, I mentioned when I did like my Ant-Man review, which was like my second or third one that I love stories about little things. And I think that that's going to show through in what our main topic is today. But I also just as a kid loved like the borrowers and any book that was just about, people being small or like little mice type creatures using you know human implements in in whatever way which like i said is is part of the movie we're going to talk about and i guess i should also preface this by saying that this movie does have a contentious word in the title but i watched uh the indian in the cupboard which came out in the 90s and was directed by frank oz now my old roommate, he actually like went to a reservation and taught math there for a while. And, you know, who knows what time a listener or like what year a listener might be listening to this in the future. But the tribe that he was working with, they actually preferred that term over some of the other terms that have come to be considered more PC over the years. So I will just say that Littlefoot is an Iroquois, which they establish and refer to him that way. Did either of you ever read this book when you were children or see this movie? I saw the I movie. I used to watch this movie a yeah. lot as a kid. Yeah. It's kind of like a big budget Charles Band movie. It's kind of how I remember it. Yes, but there's like a magic to it. You know, the magic of childhood, I guess. Um, I never saw this movie as a kid, but I read this book and the first three sequels, which at the time, there that was all there was. There were four books. The books are different and i think that i had no interest in this movie as a kid because i didn't want to see omri as an american kid it just didn't seem quite uh right based on my sensibilities uh as a little pretentious asshole and i love those books they're really fun and they they kind of have like a weird sci-fi bent to them that i don't know 
was really present in this movie where like oh they realize that littlefoot and the uh, cowboy character are like living people from another time but like the books actually go on and you find out that like it's the key that does it it has nothing to do with the cupboard so like eventually they start being able to use the key on other things and then where the key came from is explored but not in a way that's really obnoxious it's it's tied to like Omri's family history so it has like it remains interesting and what i remember most about the books is how they were kind of educational in a way that was counter to what the like larger american narrative about indigenous peoples were that you know omri he just assumes that uh littlefoot will want littlefoot lightfoot he's not he's not a baby brachiosaurus yeah i was gonna say i think that's a dinosaur (laughs) yeah sorry (laughs) a little don bluth bleed over (laughs) yeah yeah oh my gosh it's on my brain but, you know, he assumes that Lightfoot will want to sleep in a teepee. And so he, like, makes him a teepee and, you know, Littlefoot's like, no, Iroquois live in longhouses. You know, there was actually, like, a, a big, diverse group here. You know, this wasn't just uh, a homogenized, you know, narrative of the native. It was, you know, I had my own family and my own tribe and my own beliefs, and they were different from others. And this movie does not have that, but I found that it had more of it than I expected in the sense that, you know, Omri really does learn something about the history of his nation and the ugliness of it while it's still a narrative that is magical for children. And as, of course, as our obligatory uh, Star Trek reference this week, whenever he puts a bunch of toys in the cupboard at one point to see what they will do, one of them is a Ferengi and one of them is a Cardassian. And when he opens it, they are fighting. So, sorry, Brandon, you can enter, you can (laughs) ring your bell and you can hit your buzzer. That one felt natural. I'm going to let that one pass. (laughs) I can't promise it'll be the only time tonight, but I will go ahead and exit the floor of my uh, retinue and ask you, Brandon, what have you been watching? Well, uh, the Oscar ceremony is this week, so I'm putting a lid on my catch-up that I've been doing, Oh, and I will not bore you with all the stuff that I should not have watched. <laughs> there were a few things I knew I wasn't going to be that into, and I watched them anyway, so no Nomad Land takes, no Five Bloods or uh, Another Round. I'll skip all the that stuff. I did find two movies that were nominated for Oscars that I enjoyed a lot more than I expected to. Uh, one was a pretty simple like creature feature called Love and Monsters that's nominated for like best visual effects. Oh, with Dylan O'Brien. I do not know who that is. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what do you know him from? Uh, let's uh, Teen Wolf. I know him from Teen Wolf. I can't pretend. <laughs> <laughs> Searching for something highbrow that Dylan O'Brien was. In. I was like, is it more? Is it more embarrassing to say Teen Wolf or Maze Runner, which I went and saw in theaters because it had Dylan O'Brien Oof. in it? So let's just say Teen Wolf. I, I'll just admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's pretty adorable in this. It's it's a pretty like. Um, low stakes like monster movie he's in this like post-apocalyptic world he's got a long distance girlfriend that he can only speak to over the radio but he's like a coward so he can't travel on the surface because it's crawling with all these different monsters and he has to like find the courage to like reunite with this girl pretty simple stuff 
he befriends a very uh, cute dog along the way. And the dog is like more self-sufficient and heroic than him. Um, <laughs> and it's really like adorable watching this dog teach a human boy, like how to be self-sufficient <laughs> and like courageous. Uh, I found that very cute. The monster stuff is really what sells it. And that's probably why it was nominated for best visual effects. Like there haven't been a lot of big blockbusters that came out in the past year, obviously. So this movie has a bunch of different like bugs and exoskeleton, like sea creatures that have blown up to like Kaiju size and uh, all these like post-apocalyptic survivors have to fight them off to like scavenge for food on the surface of the planet. Otherwise they live in bunkers Um, and the monsters are all gross and they're all very different from each other. So like, even if you get kind of bored with like the romance plot, you know, the movie's always always has an exciting like creature around the corner, which is good for me because I I started to realize watching this and like watching some Godzilla movies lately that really all I want out of movies is like goofy, gross monsters <laughs> like, uh, on a baseline level. If you could deliver that, I will leave somewhat satisfied. But I think I think one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up too is uh, it was reminding me a lot of this movie from last year called Spontaneous. It's set in this like high school where kids at that specific high school start spontaneous combusting in class. And it's like an epidemic among those kids. And two of them uh, fall in love during this like crisis in their lives. And they like kind of mourn the loss of their classmates and sort of like bond together over the like grief. And it's a weird movie because it starts off as this like kind of like Heather's descendant where it's got this very black sense of humor but as the romance swells up it starts to um, become more and more sincere and by the end it's like a movie about grief in a very in very like explicit terms and because it came out during the pandemic it reminded me a lot of like just how kids are like graduating high school and having to move on with their lives right now even though the world is like literally crumbling around us yeah 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 that's my my niece's life right now yeah it's pretty heavy, right? And for, especially for like a teen comedy. And this movie was reminding me so much, Love and Monsters, of that same exact theme. And um, I looked at the credits at the end, and the guy who wrote Love and Monsters also wrote and directed Spontaneous. Okay. Um, which I should not have been surprised by, but uh, his name's Brian Duffield. And looking further in his credits, he also wrote the first Babysitter film, which I very much enjoyed. Yeah. So I don't know. Brian Duffield, kind of a guy to look out for. Like he's writing these very over the top genre movies that have this like surprising sincerity at the core of them, especially about like growing up um, in tumultuous times. And then I got to say the one Oscars movie that all of this culminated in where I was like, this is a great film. People made fun of it mercilessly online for very superficial reasons. And I'm frustrated that it was only nominated for like best costuming and like kind of technical awards like that was the new movie adaptation of Pinocchio that came out around Christmas. I feel like the only online momentum it gathered was people making fun of two things, which is the fact that another Pinocchio movie came out. I think there's like three in development right now. And it's almost like an in joke among Italian directors to like make a Pinocchio movie because it's just been done so many times. And the other sort of joke about it is Roberto Benigni has returned to the material. Instead of embarrassing himself as the boy puppet this round, he's playing Geppetto, which 
I think the last one kind of tanked his career, so I could see why it would be a punchline. I have right. to say I have whatever defective gene makes Roberto Benigni funny. Um, and I found him hilarious and sad as Geppetto in this film, so the casting worked for me. He's also not in it a lot, so if, if that's a no-go for you, that, that's not going to stop you from watching it, or it shouldn't. But this movie is directed by the guy who did Tale of Tales a few years ago, um, that fabulously dark fairy tale film. And he brings that same energy to this. He's like telling the Pinocchio story, like straight out of its like origins. It's really dark and sad. And most of the effects are practical with a few like green screen exceptions. Like they actually do like practical gore makeup to make this like little wooden boy and all his like fucked up whale and like fairy friends. And it's just like a horrifically, upsetting nightmare and also like a delightful comedy about like a mischievous boy whose uh, antics keep ruining the lives of everyone. He like runs through the room while they happen to be sitting there. Pinocchio is such a little fuck up. <laughs> loving him is uh, something you do at your own peril, which might extend to the movie itself. Like I love this film. This would have been in my top five movies I saw last year. Uh, had I seen it in time for that list making ritual. And uh, I'm kind of a little annoyed that like movie nerds kind of dismissed it so readily. Well, I'm very proud of Nim. Very proud because I think it did prove that classical animation can be done in today's economy. And so many people were saying that it can't. You know, that that kind of thing is gone. There was a golden age and it's all over. Uh, And I don't believe that's really true. I think if you want it to happen, you can make it happen. This week we are talking about the Don Bluth classic, Secret of Nim, from 1982, based on the 1970 novel by Robert C. O'Brien, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. I'm sure that you can figure out why they changed her name. It's the number one piece of trivia on every single Secret of Nim website. Although maybe this was your first time watching it and you didn't spend your youth uh, reading GeoCities and Angel <laughs> Fire pages with little pieces of trivia about the secret of them and Star Trek The Next Generation and the never-ending story like I did. So maybe you didn't know that they had to change it, obviously, because of the product called The Frisbee. But it is about a woman named Mrs. Brisbee, who is <laughs> not a woman, she's a mouse, and her home is endangered by the coming of spring. And therefore, the farm on which she lives is about to be plowed. So her sick little son, her youngest son, is ill with pneumonia and can't leave their home in order to travel. But their home is endangered. So she goes on a pretty epic quest across just a yard where she meets a wise owl and the rats of Nim, who give the film its title. I don't really feel like we need to go into too much of a recap because although, Brandon, this was your first time watching it, I was surprised by that because I I think that this is a pretty foundational memory for a lot of people our age is watching this movie. But what what did you think? Well, I mean, my main thought is how did I miss this, to be honest? (laughs) So I have the same level of surprise. Like, I, I think most like Don Bluth classics, I saw a bunch as a kid. And then even the lower dregs of like Rockadoodle uh, haunted my childhood. I was very scared by the uh, opening flood scene in that movie, um, combined with like 
you know, evacuating for hurricanes kind of left an impression on me, even though Rockadoodle yeah. is like total dog shit. I concur. It's a dog shit movie and it is very frightening if you ever had to deal with flooding as a child. It rings very true. It's very grim, despite being only like, I don't know, 45 minutes long. And this one is darkness and despair the whole time. It's like a very like emotionally tough film, I think, for for little kids, but in a way that I couldn't help but love because that's just the kind of media I feel like I was raised on. Like 80s movies, especially for children, were a lot tougher on kids and like kind of treated them with more like emotional intelligence than I think a lot of like more recent media seems to Um, not saying that I watch a ton of new kids movies. So I'm not like an expert on the subject, but just like watching this single mother fight like tirelessly to get medicine for her dying son. And then to like save her other kids from drowning in mud. And the part that like really broke my heart was like, she finally gets some like answers on the mysterious ways her husband was like different from her and like his connection to these super intelligent rats and like all these like magical things that the uh, rats are involved in. But the detail she gets stuck on is like, Oh, I never knew how he died. No one told me how my husband died. And like that moment, like felt like a pit dropping in my stomach. Yeah. I don't know. I just couldn't help but love it. It felt like a kind of nostalgia, even though I hadn't seen the film before. Like it felt like it was like part of my DNA, um, even though it was entirely new to me. And Allie, you saw this as a child, as I did, right? Yeah, I saw this as a child, and I have not watched it since. And the sense of dread is basically the only thing that stuck with me my like whole life about this movie. Because I only saw it a couple of times, because I was a very, very sensitive child. And even though I grew up with all of this horrifying like 90s, 80s like media... It was still too much for me, you know? Like, I would rewatch Babe Pig in the City, which has some very, very horrifying moments, but like, Rats of Nim, tough sell for me as a child. But as an adult, I really, really enjoy it. And I know as a kid, I did enjoy it, and I thought it was a great movie. It's one of those, like, great movie, never want to watch it again, but for kids. And part of it is, I don't think the details really stick with kids about it. All you think of as a kid was, oh, that movie was really dark. And as an adult, it still feels like this fever dream, like magic, but also like a weird sci-fi element. And there's a lot of characters without pupils in their eyes, which I also feel like adds to that terror because that's always, always creepy. Specifically, the mice and rats before they are experimented upon have pupil and irisless eyes. Yeah. And they, they kind of develop those as they are experimented upon, which I guess kind of spoils some of what we're talking about. But yeah, you're right. And I never read the books, though I do know the real life Rats and Nim story, but I think I would probably enjoy the books a lot, but that's a whole other thing. I did read the books uh, when I was a kid. At the time, there were just two. I don't know if there are more now, but... I remember enjoying the first book a lot more than the second. I read the first one several times. And the books are not, there's no magic in them at all. You you could almost consider them pretty hard science fiction in a way. There is a lot of detail, especially at the beginning of the first one, about 
the actual rats and Jonathan and Aegis and like how they like escaped. And there's a lot of world building that, uh, you know, of the kind that appeals to a child like I was where it's like, Oh, and they have electricity because of this. And then they have this like contraption where if they're ever discovered, they just like kind of pull this lever and it floods the whole thing so that the humans never find out, you know, about them. And this movie though, I must've seen 50 times as a kid one of the daycare centers that i went to as a kid because my you know my parents both went to work like hours and hours before school started so we would get dropped off at like before care in the morning and then go from there to school and they had the vhs copy of the movie and i loved it so much that even when you know i was sometimes like we would pick a movie to rent from one of the local mom and pop video stores before like blockbuster like wiped those out I would pick Secret of Nim because I loved it. I loved just sort of the beauty of it. I was obsessed with Mrs. Brisby. I thought she was just the coolest. And I think, strangely enough, I forgot to mention that I showed Cat Aliens for the first time over the weekend. She had never seen it before. And the 80s were like a period of time when you could have a movie where the actual maternalism of the character doesn't like quote unquote feminize them necessarily in a way that people complain about but like moms kick ass mrs brisby kicks ass ripley kicks ass and i love that she's an unusual protagonist for this kind of movie right like yeah i was thinking like oh you would expect one of her kids to kind of take over and like save her from you know whatever mess she gets in but she she remains the protagonist the whole time and then I was looking up the uh, sort of like straight to VHS kind of like knockoff sequels that this movie had. And um, of course, her sick son from this film becomes like the main character of the next story. It's like, oh, well, that's a lot more expected and like probably something Don Bluth had nothing to do with other than licensing. Yeah. But I definitely did more reading on his career um, than I did on this movie this week just because it's kind of incredible that someone took this big of a swing at Disney and was very open about the fact that he wanted to best them at their own art form and wanted to change their like profit models. He wanted to do like profit sharing with the animators um, and wanted to like make more serious minded films in the old Disney model. He felt like he had lost, they had lost their way. And I, I think the inclusion of magic in this film, which is really only, represented by like what a magic amulet which is in like every 80s kids movie yeah there's that and then there's the scene where mrs brisby sings a lullaby to her sick son oh yeah that feels like a moment from a disney film completely disconnected from anything else that happens here like there's a few like tells like that he's like oh this is me making a good disney movie i'm gonna show you how your art form used to be good. And I got to say it was very successful, even if not financially. I don't think he you know, did Disney numbers at the box office, but this is more watchable to me than most of their eighties movies. It was up against ET. So oh, oh that's, that's tough. Yeah. yeah. And I will say he did get his start as a Disney animator. He worked on like sleeping beauty and the jungle book. And I think Robin hood, but after sleeping beauty up until like, the little mermaid that period disney was not super successful either and i can see being like yeah this is creatively bankrupt i'm gonna do my own thing 
I think probably the best movie that came out in that period was probably Great Mouse Detective, which was a few years after this and is, again, a movie about adorable little mice living in a human world, having human attributes and like using shot glasses as buckets, which is just a thing that I find adorable. Like I, I can't get enough of that shit. See, I feel like I watched more Don Bluth movies as a kid than Disney movies. Or maybe it's just the ones that stick with me, you know? And part of that is like, his movies aren't afraid to be weird. Yeah. Which Disney is not about. <laughs> There's a almost theological element. I mean, I guess that's most obvious in All Dogs Go to Heaven, but like is also present in The Land Before Time. They're, they're not afraid to really tackle some tough topics. And I think that that is something that's missing from children's media of today. Like Brandon, I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I watch a ton of children's media, but what I will say is when my goddaughter, who is about to be a teenager, was a child, we had already sort of suffered from like the fraction of the household into like everybody has their own device and watches their own thing. So media that is made for children is mostly market driven. You know, it has to make you want the toy, but it also, it, it's not inspective at all in the way that the secret of nim is a movie that came out years before i was born but because of the nature of the way that media used to function where you would get these hand-me-down tapes and things that appeared on television were usually five to ten years old you would see these movies that were from the 80s like you know the never-ending story also a movie that has a lot of really dark elements in it that we saw as children just because they were on tv or because that was what was around, even if they were older than us. And children's media of today is not willing to be that dark or be that confrontational with its subject matter, at least not since like maybe the Iron Giant. Like after 2001, a lot of things just became very uh, jingoistic and not very uh, intent on making you question anything. Yeah, so I will say... I did not care for the movie overall, but I do think Frozen 2 actually <laughs> did a lot of tough things and made me cry. Okay. So it's few and far between. Fair enough. And I'd say I'd say the, the closest model to what this is doing is more like Kubo and the Two Strings yes. and like other Leica movies, like Coraline, um, what it, mostly the Paranorman. Yeah. They're kind of doing the same thing. They're like, hey, you know, there's these more traditional modes of animation and like more emotionally complex stories we could be telling right now than what most like Disney and Pixar movies are even willing to do. And they're supposed to be like the standard bearer of the art form. Yeah. But those movies are also not making money. Like I saw Kubo and the Two Strings opening weekend in like an empty theater. (laughs) Unfortunately, they're not. I saw saw that movie in theaters as well. And, you know, here... There were definitely a lot more people because, you know, like it's based out of here, but it's definitely a shame because they're so talented. I don't know. It's I go to see their movies and I'm just like, why am I so upset that you animated water in a stop motion film? (laughs) You are showing off. (laughs) And, you know, they have like the only business model that works right now, which is just draining a millionaire's bank accounts like that Nike money funding them uh, is the only thing keeping them afloat. So we kind of needed a world where Don Bluth had like a patron of uh, like Coca-Cola size. 
which I guess Steven Spielberg kind of filled later in his career, uh, kind of yeah. swooped in and like helped fund a few projects. One thing that I did want to note is that if y- you saw the VHS version of this as a child, you've actually seen more than if you watch the letterboxed version that is on Tubi, which is what I assume everybody watched. This was drawn in 4.3 and illustrated in 4.3, which was actually what Bluth preferred for animation for whatever reason, and then was letterboxed for the theatrical release, which is the release that's currently online. Now, I have a quasi-legal DVD rip of the movie, which is in wide, uh, in full screen. It's in 4.3. And I started to watch that, and I was like, Wow, this is this is like a wide screen, a full screen presentation. What is the version that's on Tubi? And I actually compared it, and uh, luckily this movie opens with someone writing in a book that goes to the edge of the frame, so you can actually compare the two pretty quickly and easily. There is more in the frame uh, when you watch it in four three. There's a couple of extra lines. So if you are interested in tracking this down, I would say do so legally if you can, and if not. Uh, which obviously you can because Tubi is free to everyone. Uh, but if you manage to find a VHS copy of this, you'll actually see more of the Bluth animation than you do in the letterboxed version. And I got to say the version on Tubi, like it might be cutting off some of the frame, but it looks better than I expected. Yeah. It wasn't like a shitty scan. It actually had like a lot of detail that even like a lot of old animation um, restorations would sort of smooth out and pave over. Yeah. This had, had a lot of texture to it, and the contrast was um, really beautiful. The sparks jumped out of that darkness. There's a lot of like magic yeah. sparks in the film. Yes. This, unlike Disney, has because it's more of a cult hit, although it was extremely popular post-theatrical release, HBO bought the rights of it up real cheap. And so it was part of their stable of just like filler films during the 80s so it, that's also part of why it like affected a generation's consciousness because if your parents had hbo even for one summer then you saw this movie but it does not have the digital noise reduction which has become a problem uh for the disney films as they like port those to blu-ray and even to disney plus there's a lot of dnr work that is just erasing the texture of the film making everything just seem sort of washed out and weird. Yeah, the, the version on Tubi actually looks pretty good. I, I know we keep like every week saying that we're like surprised by the good work <laughs> of the good folks over at Tubi, but uh, this is another instance of a win for yeah. them. Yeah, you know, if we keep singing their praises enough, are they going to recognize us? Are they going to notice us? I'll become a full Tubi pod if they want to uh, sponsor the show. Right. <laughs> I'll just only cover films that you can watch on Tubi. I think we'll be fine. Yeah, that catalog <laughs> is extensive. One thing that I didn't question much as a child that I found sort of strange this time and wanted to discuss with y'all, did the mice understand and value the concept of, like, holy matrimony? (laughs) That that Mrs. Brisby and Jonathan were married? Like, were they they married in the eyes of God? Like, what's the... (laughs) What's happening there? It gets even more complicated when you think of the moral implications of this like hyper intelligent mouse that was going to live forever marrying a common field mouse, not telling her about his like super intelligence 
and was just going to like ride out her lifetime as her husband um, and then kind of move on after her death. Uh, um, not well, how it ended up working out, but. Do we think he would have moved on? I don't know. Jonathan would never. We don't know Jonathan, though. We know of Jonathan. We know how much everyone respected and loved and cared for him. I guess I'll take the rat's word for it then. Yeah. And I, I, do we ever really find out if the experimentation occurred before or after their marriage? It was before their marriage. It was yeah. like before he came to the field because they all escaped from Nim and then they came to the field together. There is sort of the implication that like whatever they did to them at Nim is spreading because Mrs. Brisby mentions that Jonathan could read and she can just a little bit and that the children read better than she did. And, you know, some of the animals we see that are not rats or mice, I guess just Auntie Shrew, is wearing clothing. So whatever they did to <laughs> the rats and the mice in Nim it could be like it's spreading like that intelligence seems to be spreading and i think um whatever that effect is has the opposite effect on crows because the crows in this movie are ridiculously dumb like and very goofy and unintelligent not yeah they're regal um intelligent super creatures who will bring you gifts if you're nice to them <laughs> i thought that if there was going to be anything that would turn you off of this movie other than the weird disney song because I have to say, I forgot about that from my childhood. I blocked that out. And even though I it's just so watched this within the past 48 hours again, I had already forgotten about the song again. So other than the song, which is my like picnic at Hanging Rock, where I just forget that it's up there. Uh, <laughs> the Crow, I also tend to forget about as well, because it's not interesting to me. And I thought maybe that would be a turning, uh, a turning off point for you as someone who had not seen this before. I don't think it's good, but uh, I will say Dom DeLuise's voice is also one of those things that just kind of instantly transports me back to childhood. Like, I don't hear his voice in any context, it's, except for in, like, animated children's films um, from when I was a kid. Mostly Dom Bluth movies, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Yep. He's got kind of, like, a, uh, a Richard Kind quality, where, like... Even if he's being annoying, you kind of can't help but find him a little adorable. So I don't know. Not my favorite template for a character, like the goofy side character, like the uh, the dragon from Mulan or something, like usually would get on my nerves. But I'll, I'll give it a pass just for nostalgia's sake in this case. It's strange that the rabbits don't seem to be that smart. They're just, they're just rabbits, <laughs> right? But, you know, we've got... Auntie Shrew, who wears clothes, and her name is just what she is. And it, Mrs. Brisby is never given a first name. And I think that we're supposed to take from that the implication that just like the concept of having a name was something that didn't exist for her prior to Jonathan, right? Like yeah, she has yeah, no name other than that. her husband's name, which I find fascinating as well. And maybe, maybe that's why the wise owl, who is so cool. Uh, maybe that's why he's so smart is because he's eaten so many smart rats. <laughs> <laughs> he's so scary. And he's like that scene. It's like a foundational like memory for me. It's so imprinted on my mind. Yeah, I can say with certainty that it was one of the scenes that I was watching. And I was like, oh, that's where that childhood media memory 
comes from. So much glowing eyes and like he exists, you know, as this like unknowable being, even in a way almost like the humans are. I mean, we do see a couple of scenes that are more from the humanoid point of view. And in those scenes, like dragon seems more like a regular cat rather than like a a monster. And so it does sort of imply that there's a, a narrative filter that's happening with the movie that we're watching. But the humans are also like unknowable Cthulhu-esque beings to these mice. And then you have the big scary tractor. Uh, it's yeah. also like this like almost sentient object uh, in the way that it's like coming to plow the field. They know that the uh, human's in charge of it, but um, it, it still is like kind of animated like a big beast that they have to defeat uh, yeah. before it mows down their homes. There's a bunch of different threats, you know? Like yeah. It's not just the owl or the cat. You also got like the defector rat who um, is a, a bit of a misogynist. He keeps calling Miss Brisby hysterical and yes. like telling her to like stop flipping out and to calm down. And it's interesting that this movie from the 80s would take Miss Brisby's side on this. I don't know. I just, I guess I'm just so used to like that classic, like that good old sexism that I'm like, wow, yeah, they're actually like respecting a woman for being upset because she's upset reasonably everything's terrible (laughs) that was refreshing but i imagine myself as a kid and like i really loved animals still do and yeah it just stressed me out like (laughs) this all these threats it's like watching the animal planet you know because it's like constant fight for survival for these these little critters like you know there's a bunch of insert shots of miss brisby cowering like a field mouse would cower when scared yeah uh, it's just her like kind of curled in herself and shaking um and i, I can imagine uh the wrong kid seeing this on the wrong day and like just huddling in the corner in the same way <laughs> just like violently shaking uh hoping for the movie to just end <laughs> it's like mildly traumatizing in that way it depends upon the sensitivity of the child obviously but fiction is a really important thing for children to be scared of it allows children to experience fear in a way that's sort of harmless in a in a way that can be you know you might have nightmares for a day or two after you see something but ultimately it's a a terror that's not real and it allows you to experience those feelings in a way that thrills you but doesn't overwhelm you it's like a like a roller coaster or anything else you know and the stories that we tell children have been dark for a very long time. Fairy tales are dark stories. They're dark narratives. And I think that we have lost something by over-sanitizing, for the most part, the media that we provide children with. I think that that's not necessarily something new. That was something that happened even in the 1900s and with things like Pamela or Virtue Rewarded, you know, these like moralizing books for children that were goody two shoes, purity pure kind of stuff. And we're just on a cycle right now where the things that are made for kids are mostly harmless and in a way that doesn't provide them with the thrill that I think that we were fortunate enough to have as children. We were fortunate to have uh, (laughs) taken part in the part of the cycle where they were willing to be like, here are a bunch of wheelers in Oz, kids. 
It's scary <laughs> as shit. Here's a woman who takes her head off, and and here's like you know Atreyu trying to make his way through these freaking laser beams that come out of these sphinx eyes, and Mrs. Brisby's children are in mortal danger a lot. The children are in danger, not just her. And I think that that's something that's kind of lacking now, and uh, hopefully we get back to it soon. No one told her how her husband died. <sighs> she was just sitting there wondering. And then she learned about magic existing in the world, and she thought, oh, no one told me how he died. That's such an odd moment for a kid's story. Like That really <laughs> took me aback, and I can't stop thinking about it's it. so sad. <laughs> so sad. It also, you know, it's how a person's brain would work. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's like pretty mundane problems. Like when the movie starts, she's not worried about the tractor so much as she's worried about her child dying of pneumonia, um, <laughs> which is not a very like exhilarating, like fantastic conflict for a children's film. Like pretty just grim. There's something about like media, even now that we make for children, just to not to keep going back to the same point and hammering it in. It's a lot of telling and not showing you know oh this character's a coward and they overcome their cowardice like it's so explicit and doesn't leave much to the imagination or the interpretation whereas mrs brisby is a hero that you really believe in and you really love and care about because yes she's doing this for her children but also she is scared out of her tiny little mouse mind most of the time everything is gigantic and scary and you know it chews up the earth or it killed her husband but she never ever stops trying and i think that that's really beautiful too like it's not just like oh i've overcome my fear and now i can do this it's it's it shows you that by showing you what she's afraid of and what she's right to be afraid of and also what she overcomes and i think as far as you know for kids it's really important to see somebody or something that small in peril and scared and still doing the thing exactly life is just out of their control you know i work with kids so i'm just you know i'm so used to like their problems <laughs> um so i'm just <laughs> watching movies like this i'm like oh yeah yeah that's that's an important lesson to learn is Sometimes life is terrible, and you got to just keep going. It's a hard world for little things. Like I said in the last episode, as someone who does work with kids, I try my hardest to follow at least some children's media, but it's really hard lately. There's not a whole lot that's watchable, you know? Much like how I feel like the big studios of Hollywood aren't, challenging viewers i also feel like we're just not challenging kids either it's kind of a lose-lose too because i mean i'm gonna spoil some conversation for next week's episode james had us watch toy story 3 which to its credit is a film that is emotionally tough yeah and i was like impressed by how dark it was willing to be, especially like as a modern children's film. Yeah. But I also still struggled to watch it because it is visually ugly to me. Like the Pixar aesthetic, the like CG animation, even the best stuff that's out there just doesn't look as good as this like tactile Don Bluth hand-drawn tradition. And I, 
am willing to at least admit that that is a personal bias. Like I grew up with the hand-drawn animation, the computer stuff looks like throwaway trash to me. So even when I'm getting the kind of content I want, the form is still like a loss that I feel like, I feel like this art form is something that even Bluth saw dying in the eighties and wanted to like keep alive in a meaningful way and gradually lost that battle, unfortunately, but uh, gotta love him for trying. Uh, Yeah. I will say, you know, as much as we're bashing on current children's media, the melancholy of the media of our childhood does live on in Pixar stuff. You mentioned Toy Story 3. I would also say Up is very much about death and grief in a way that when I saw it, I was like, oh, wow, you never really see this as much anymore in children's media. So it does exist, but you're right. It exists in that realm that you <laughs> that you don't like. And I think that that's fair. Although computer artistry, it it is an art. We have lost something now that everything is made that way. And it ages terribly. Yeah. <laughs> About five years out from when it originally was released, you look at back at it and you're like, wow, that just looks worse. <laughs> it looks worse every day. Uh, and I don't think the same could be said about Secret of Nim. I think it looks just as good now as it probably did. Yeah. Agreed. I was about to say 30 years ago. Is that accurate? Or <laughs> no. is it 40 years ago? My, 40. My, my math went way off. It's, it's 39. It's 40. Yeah. 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 It's 40 years ago. How old am I again? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you do want to hear us be more positive on modern children's media, I promise that at least James will have more ecstatically positive things to say about Toy Story 3 next week. Um, (laughs) So there will be balance in this, hopefully. I probably will say more disparaging things about Pixar because I can't help myself. But that movie is good, and we'll have good things to say about it. And it'll lead to a wider conversation about sequels that are better than the original is where we're coming from. And in the meantime, I'll also post in the show notes for this episode um, a link to all of the Oscars movies I watched so you could read me be even more um, disparaging to movies that probably deserved a better swing just because I'm biased against them um, and probably shouldn't have watched them in the first place. But I I did find a lot of great stuff like Pinocchio, another uh, modern children's movie that is very dark. And I also want to start saying at the end of these episodes, if you ever want to contact us, we have an email address. Swampflix at Gmail. We don't know who listens to this show. Maybe you have opinions. Maybe you want to tell us we're wrong about modern kids movies and recommend, you know, darker ones that are like worth discussing. We don't really hear from our audience very often. And I need to start throwing that out there. Swampflix at Gmail. Also, Tubi. Let us know about that sponsorship. Yes. If you have an in for like Tubi's uh, marketing department and they want like a podcast under their like media umbrella, they can apparently afford it. Uh, <laughs> send some money our way and we will change our tune. You think we're breathlessly complimenting you right now. We can go even harder. I can be even more of a sycophant. That's enough for now. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Don't contact me. <laughs>